coming up on today's episode of the St. Petersburg Foodies Podcast. I love this. When we first met you at Burnt Ends, one of the first things you said to us is, all tiki is fake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all kind of made up. It really is. I think you were explaining to us how uh, back when Tiki Bar started in the 30s, there was, wasn't really commercial airline travel. Yeah, commercial airline travel didn't. Well, let's just say this. When it first happened, it was terrifying from what I've read. <laughs> um, you were basically. And it is again. Plane. It is again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> True. Someone described it as like being strapped down in a lawn chair in a prop plane with like no amenities. Like it was just right. that kind of rugged. Like you were really risking your life every time you hopped on a commercial airline. But the escapism and the luxury of the time was going to the big Polynesian restaurants, whether it be the Kahiki in Columbus, Ohio, that was very popular and just you could miss it if you're on the highway because it had like 20, 30 foot moais with flame shooting out of its head. Ah. You oh my God. It. Or the Maikai, which opened the same year as Burns in 1956 in Fort Lauderdale. Coming to you from St. Petersburg, Florida, you're listening to the St. Petersburg Foodies Podcast, the show that's the authority on where to eat in St. Pete. Here are your hosts, Kevin Godby and Lori Brown. Hi, I'm Kevin Godby. And I'm Lori Brown. Thank you for tuning in today. Welcome to the St. Petersburg Foodies Podcast, the podcast that's it when it comes to restaurants and food information in St. Pete. And be sure to check out our website, stpetersburgfoodies.com. There you'll find great information, including restaurant reviews, the largest St. Pete happy hour list ever created and kept updated, and information on the newest restaurants in town. We are locals that live in downtown St. Pete, and we've been eating our way through this town for years, so you don't have to, but you should. We have a new episode every Tuesday. Just hit the subscribe button and you'll get notified when an episode is ready for download. And then you can listen to them anytime you want, like on your morning jog or commute to work. On today's show, our featured guest is Dean Hurst. Dean is the beverage director for the Dats Group, and today we take a deep dive into the world of tiki. At the top of the show, we will be talking about three news stories that include beef, tacos, and pizza. We We have have a great great show, so stick around. around. St. Pete is all about local, and this year we celebrate a local legend's 25th anniversary. Roland Oates Market and Cafe was founded in July of 94 by Bert Swain and Larry Schwartz. From the beginning, Roland Oates has made a commitment to provide St. Pete customers with the finest quality organic whole foods, nutritional supplements, and body care products at the most reasonable price as possible. And now they have a South Tampa location too. We go there for many items, but they are the only place that we go to buy our raw probiotics and other supplements. They have the best organic whole food selection in town, and on the flip side of that, they also offer a fantastic selection of wines and an unparalleled selection of local craft beer. Rollin' Oats has a cafe, Open Daily, which offers delicious sandwiches, burgers, soups, salads, bowls, wraps, entrees, and fresh-made smoothies along with a variety of prepared and packaged take-home meals located in the market itself. Do you pride yourself with supporting local businesses? Well, put your money where your mouth is and get on into Rollin' Oats today. 
Roll and Oats St. Pete is located at 2842 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Street North. And in South Tampa, you'll find them at 1021 North McDill Avenue. Check them out on the web at rollinoats.com. That's R-O-L-L-I-N oats.com. And Rollin' Oats offers online ordering with curbside pickup. Hey, Lori, have you ever been to Noble Crust? I have. What do you like there? Pork belly, pimento cheese, and fried green tomatoes are my favorite. Oh, yeah, I love that one, too. They actually call it the F-G-B-L-T. It's fried green tomatoes, pork belly glazed with a Tabasco honey sauce and pimento cheese. Mm -hmm. And it's the first item on the menu, so you can't miss it. And I think they should actually call it the OMG. Yeah, you've said that before. The chicken marsala is really good, too. It has chicken and chicken sausage, criminy mushrooms, and four cheese grits. It's so delicious. I love that they mix classics from the American Deep South and Italy. Noble Crust is famous for their fried chicken. I love it. Yeah, and the eggplant parmesan is out of this world. When we do a best eggplant parm list, it'll definitely be on there. Yes, it will. Speaking of lists, Noble Crust made six of them recently. Best Italian, Best Casual Dining, Best Pizza, Best Bloody Marys, Best Meatballs, and, believe it or not, Best Salads. Ooh, can I tell you another one of my favorite items? Yeah. The spaghetti and meatballs. It's oh, so good. Man, you're not kidding. You know what? They have a brunch on Saturdays and Sundays starting at 10.30, which I love. And the deviled eggs are to die for. Let's go to Noble Crust right now. I'm in. Let's do it. Where can you find the freshest fish in St. Pete? Well, you can't get fresher than caught that day. That's what you'll find at Trophy Fish. The day boat special includes the fresh catch of the day, cooked how you want it, with your choice of two sides and a house-made sauce. They also have some incredible appetizers, like grilled street corn that's like crack, that stuff's so good, incredible grilled oysters, fresh fish spread, and much more. You will also find some options for the land lovers out there. All of this set in a setting that makes you feel serene and relaxed with your toes in the sand, like a day at the beach. They like to call their concept, Bait Shop Chic. So head on down to Trophy Fish, where you can grab a boat drink from their full bar and fill your tummy with the freshest catch around. Trophy Fish is located at 2060 Central Avenue in the Grand Central District, They are open Wednesday through Friday at 5 p.m., Saturday and Sunday at 12 to 3 for brunch, and at 5 for dinner. Before we have Dean, I have a few things going on in the food world. First one is in regards to Epicurious.com, which used to be my favorite recipe site for a long time, back in the 90s, actually. They started in 95, and I guess I used them in 97, 98. Right, right. Well, here's their latest statement. In an effort to encourage more sustainable cooking, we won't be publishing new beef recipes on Epicurious. I know this did not sit well with you. They're definitely not my favorite recipe site anymore. And... I've had enough of all this beef bashing, and I'm not the only one from what you tell me. Right. No, you're not. Gail King talks about it on CBS this morning all the time. Yeah. And the thing is, yeah, because I'm going to sound like like the stereotypical evil boomer white middle-aged male doing this. So that's why, first of all, I want to point out that Gail is anything but that. Right. And, you know, so they say, 
this is the same thing from Epicurious. Almost 15% of greenhouse gas emissions globally come from livestock and everything involved in raising it. 61% of those emissions can be traced back to beef. I say, supposedly. Mm-hmm. Because whenever somebody has an axe to grind, they will find the statistics to justify it. Right. And, you know, if they really want to be good, why don't they leave out chicken too? I've seen documentaries on how chickens are raised and... I told you it will make you sick, so you're like, I don't even want to watch it. You don't even see them. And not only that, how about male chicks? You know what happens to them? No. They don't lay eggs. Right. So they're, they're sorting through ch- newly hatched chicks, and when they detect a male, mm-hmm. he's just tossed out, thrown in the trash. Why, you can't eat it? No, they're, they're roosters. They keep like a, a couple around. That's it, to, to bang the chickens. Hmm. Yeah. So we, we only eat females when we're eating chicken. Yes. Huh. This is something mm-hmm. I did not know. And by the way, Epicurious.com is owned by Cond Nast, the same ownership as Bon Appetit. And I'm just feeling like their social responsibility and inclusion push has been taken too far. And again, this is not me just being the evil boomer middle-aged white male. I know a, we know, a 31-year-old foodie and cook who shall remain nameless that agrees with me. So it's not just me. I have a millennial on my side, too. And we're actually both considering letting our subscriptions expire for Bon Appetit. Right. Okay, number two. The headline is, this is in the Wall Street Journal. Want to grab your food pickup order from a locker? Taco Bell bets you do. At a new outlet in Times Square, customers can order and pick up food without ever interacting with a human. Moving away from the cash register is one of the tactics restaurants are trying to attract staff in a tough labor market. So you... Order either online or through an electronic kiosk. Mm-hmm. This sounds familiar. It does. In the restaurant, cutting out the traditional cashier as middleman experience. So the store is Taco Bell Cantina, which I didn't know about until this. It's part of the company's more upscale open kitchen chain uh, that they've been testing since mid-April. Where are they testing it? Uh, this is in uh, Times Square mm. in, in Manhattan. And so customers who order online, pick up their food from locked cubbies they can access through a separate entrance without going into the main restaurant. The cubbies keep the food warm and sound an alarm if it has been sitting too long. And I just sent this over to AJ. We spoke to AJ Lambden. He was our interview last week. Right. And his new company is Kitchen Kiosk. Right. And I sent it to him, and he hit a like on it, and then he said, just saying. (laughs) (laughs) As in, hmm, maybe I've got something here. Yeah, yeah. And number three. Also from the Wall Street Journal, the headline is, New York City pizza delivery startup gets a big slice of the pie. Staten Islander Ehler Sela planned to build a $1 million business. He was thinking way too small. Now, the headline's a little bit misleading because it says startup. Right, right. Well, there were a startup in 2010. Right. Okay. So so this is not really new, but it's an interesting story. The company is Slice. Mm -hmm. And I do recall surfing online and looking for pizza stuff and find and running into them. So what they do is they partner with 16,000 independent pizzerias nationwide, including half the 2,800 shops in New York City. Mm-hmm. And they have generated $1 billion in pizza sales since they launched in 2010. Wow. So they set up small independent pizzerias with online ordering and delivery. And the places say the upsell tactics of the ordering system gets them almost double the order size than a phone order does. Wow. So they're cool with paying their fees, and the fees are really low, too. Mm-hmm. 
That's what I got for today. Well, is it Slice, S-L-Y-C-E? No, it's I. So it's not like the ones we have out here on the beach. Right. Okay. Just Slice like it's normally spelled, yeah. Interesting. Yep. We'll be right back with Dean Hurst. Keep on moving. One of our favorite places to go eat in St. Pete is Engine Number 9. They've been a staple in downtown St. Pete coming up on seven years, and they are famous for their unique and tasty burger creations. As a matter of fact, they are on the St. Pete Foodies list of best burgers in St. Pete. They also made the best hot dogs list, the best chilies, and the best wings in St. Pete. Aside from the food, Engine Number 9 is a great sports bar with lots of TVs, beer, and wine. And you can even get a regular old cheeseburger, too, so you can bring your non-adventurous eater friends. Check out Engine Number 9 at the corner of MLK and 1st Avenue North in downtown St. Pete. Their burgers can't be beat. Ramen is the ultimate comfort food, and Booyah Ramen on the 900 block of Central Avenue is my go-to. It's so freaking good. The broth is like a silky blanket to warm up your mouth. And the hearty proteins, or just mushrooms for vegetarians, it'll have you saying, ooh, mommy, the umami is making my eyes roll back in my head. My favorites are the pork belly and the short rib. Mmm. And then there's the noodles. O-M-G. Go get the best ramen in St. Pete at Booyah Ramen at 911 Central Avenue in the Edge District of downtown St. Pete. Do ya, Booyah? Our guest today is the beverage director for the Dats Restaurant Group. Please welcome Dean Hurst. Welcome, Dean. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Lori. So the Dats Restaurant Group obviously has several different restaurant concepts, such as the namesake Dats in Tampa and St. Pete, as well as Dr. Barbecue and the newer Donovan Steakhouse. But today's show is going to be dedicated to all things tiki. Yes. And I didn't really know this until we came to see and where we met you at Burnt Ends that tiki is a thing. Like collecting definitely a thing. People collect tiki mugs and glasses and Burnt Ends Tiki Bar, which we're going to talk about in detail in a little bit, is the upstairs bar at Dr. Barbecue. But first, we want to learn upstairs outdoor bar. Yes. Want to learn a little bit about you, Dean. And I remember you telling us that you have 10 years of experience in Tiki. So let's work our way up to that. Where did you grow up, go to school, and how did you get your start in the business? Oh boy, I don't think any of that has anything to do with where I am now. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. We like to hear the that's background. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. Um, my family moved here in 1978 from Pennsylvania. So at seven years old, I didn't have much say in that choice. But uh, I loved it. We, um, My mom and I spent every weekend on the beach. And when I say every weekend, I mean Saturday morning, Sunday morning, sun up to sunset. Nice. Like on the beach. So, so um, did, were you living actually in St. Petersburg or somewhere else in Tampa Bay? Uh, we moved around a little bit, but we settled down in Clearwater for quite a while. I went to Dunedin High School and Dunedin Middle School. So we, we were on Clearwater Beach on the, that where that North Palm Pavilion is. We were yeah. out there every morning and nice. all the way to sunset. 
Yeah, I went to I went to Clearwater High School too. So, or not? You didn't say you went to Clearwater High School. Though, no, you so. went to Dunedin. Dunedin, Dunedin right? But I went to Clearwater. So yeah, yeah it was funny because I lived in Clearwater, but was zoned for the Dunedin. Dunedin. School. Yeah, I know yeah, it was strange right zoning, right? I remember. Yeah. We probably know some of the same people. Probably. <laughs> so and what did you do also, after high school? So after high school, well, let's just say I didn't and still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> so I got involved in the restaurant business to pay for college, as a, a lot of young people do, and realized how much I didn't like school and how easy the money was in the hospitality world. But then as you get older and start to get you know through your 20s and close to 30s, uh, you start realizing, well, okay, this isn't maybe the best retirement plan. <laughs> right. So I took it, I took the beverage worlds more seriously because I didn't necessarily want to be a small yay. Cause I was at the time, at the time when I was really all, realizing all of this, I was working for Burn Steakhouse. So it's uh-huh. back up that a second. So jumping around from different fine dining uh, restaurants in, in Tampa, I was hired at uh, then Sideburns uh-huh. in December of 1999. And I stayed there all the way through uh, April of 2016. So I was oh, there wow. 15 years. Yeah. It's a rare thing in the restaurant world to stay somewhere that, that long. So I had plenty of sommeliers to compete with. Uh, the beer world, I, I can't drink that much beer. Like I love beer, but I'm only good for one or two and then I'm done. I'm disinterested. Right. right. Oh, or my body's angry at me, one or the other. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I focused on cocktails. And I had a good friend in New York City, my friend Sean. Um, He owns a few restaurants up there. But prior to that, he worked at some really great places. And whenever I would go up to visit him, which was usually twice a year, he would go to all the best cocktail bars in New York City. And then I would bring those ideas back to Tampa. So I was always, in a sense, five years or so ahead of the curve. That's cool. Yeah. So we elevated a great program at Sideburns and were able to maintain that for quite a while. And that's kind of my, how I got involved in the beverage world, um, cool. just happenstance. And as I like to say, uh, successfully stumbling forward. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I don't think we've ever mentioned this on the show, but there's been a few times in the past and not mentioning any names, but we had been talking with different restaurateurs and they told us, oh yeah, we went on a trip and we went to this city and that city and this city, and we got all these new ideas. Right. Right. So we have to find out if anyone comes to St. Pete to get ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, in the beer world, most definitely, we're kind of like one of the beer capitals in the country for sure. Yeah. Um, and a lot of food chains, believe it or not, whether you, however you feel about that, um, start off here. They're, they're right. tested here because our demographic matches the whole country. And with uh, no state tax and all the other uh, great benefits for the restaurant world, a lot of concepts get tested here. Yeah. yeah. I think we talked about that with uh, Heather McPherson brought that up too. Right. That you know, a lot of stuff gets tested here. Most famously, Outback Steakhouse, which started in yeah. Tampa, and Hooters, which started in Clearwater. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I love this. When we first met you at Burnt Ends, one of the first things you said to us is, "All tiki is fake." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all kind of made up. It really is. I had some Martin Denny playing behind me when we were outside in the bar, and uh, so he was. I think the term is armchair composer. Like he had uh-huh. never been to the Pacific. He'd never heard a wild bird call before or been in a rainforest. And when you listen to Martin Denny's music, which some people, if they're not familiar with it, would call it elevator music because it's kind of got this melodic, very soothing tone to it. But on occasion, there'll be these like bird calls in the sound in the back in the background. And it's really just members of the band like going, call, call, <laughs> you know, like in a microphone. 
So escapism is it's escape from where you are to someplace you aren't. Right. <laughs> right. So right. define that. And it, your, your, your world is, is completely wide open. Right. It's like a glamorized Hollywood rendition of Polynesia and other tropical islands exactly. to transport you there. And here's a funny one I just found this morning, you know, as far as an example of fake trader Vic, not his real name. It was one of the first tiki bars told people that the wooden leg he had lost to tuberculosis had actually been the result of being attacked by a shark. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> but why let the truth get in the way of a good story? Right, right. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So I think you were explaining to us how uh, back when Tiki Bar started in the 30s, there was, wasn't really commercial airline travel. Yeah, commercial airline travel didn't. Well, let's just say this. When it first happened, it was terrifying from what I've read. <laughs> um, you are basically and it is again. Plane. It is again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> true. Someone described it as like being strapped down in a lawn chair in a prop plane with like no amenities. Like it was just right. that kind of rugged. Like you were really risking your life every time you hopped on a commercial airline. Sounds and like when I like went in, skydiving. <laughs> oh well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very close to that. I've done it a few times. I, I I can't wait to go back and do it again. It's awesome, right? It is an awesome experience. You Sorry, don't quite get the high as you do the first time, though. That okay. high is pretty great. Okay, so I, I got one of those like Trader Vic. Years ago, I um, was jumping over a fence and I broke my ankle. And when I was at different like trade shows and stuff and with crutches, I told everybody I did it jumping out of a plane. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so back back to the, the flying at that time. Hmm. Right. So no one had been to any of these places. And this didn't really explode till after World War II. You had a lot of servicemen in the Pacific arena and they grew to appreciate, you know, sand and the ocean and birds and weird stuff that they'd never seen before. So there was an element of that that definitely um, the tiki culture that was that started in the 30s and was growing in the 40s, then exploded in the 50s. And you also can look how prosperous the country was post-World War II and into the 50s where... right. You know, I mean, as long as you had a full time job, dad could work and the mom stayed home and, and was the, the housemaker and you could afford to have a house and a car and go on vacations like that's what happened in the 50s. Um, right. Imagine that good time. But the escapism and the luxury of the time was going to the big Polynesian restaurants, whether it be the Kikiki in Columbus, Ohio, that was very popular and just you could miss it if you're on the highway because it had like 20, 30 foot moais with flame shooting out of its head. Ah. Oh, my God. <laughs> or the Maikai, which opened the same year as Burns in 1956 in Fort Lauderdale. So mm -hmm. those were the, that was the, today we have the steakhouse. Then you had the Polynesian restaurants, those big giant palaces. Right. right. Very cool. So, yeah. And then I think around the seventies or late seventies, it started to fall off and then didn't it make a comeback in the nineties and then seemingly now also. Well, yeah, you can, so as you go out of the fifties and you get into the sixties, what were kids doing? Rebelling against every single thing their parents. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So Tiki fell completely on its face. And by the end of the seventies into the eighties, it, it all but fallen apart. Um, there's still places that, that exist like the Maikai. Um, and there's some Trader Vic's that still are open. Uh, Disney obviously has an ownership in, in the Tiki world uh, in both Disneyland and Disney world. But yeah, it really, it, it was punished pretty badly. And only until maybe even the last 10 years, you could say, maybe 15, um, that it started popping up in certain cities and becoming popular again in small niche groups. And within the last four or five years, it's really exploded and becoming a little more mainstream. Mm -hmm. Right. 
so uh, Dean, when did you become interested in Tiki? And uh, I would say 2009 when I was really getting involved in the bar world and the spirits and cocktail world, I, and me and a group of friends decided we were going to start our own USBG chapter for the Tampa Bay. So that's United States bartenders guild. Mm -hmm. And as we were researching it and wanting to promote what we were doing and legitimizing, you know, what a bartender does. Cause at that point, and even in some circles now, like, Oh, you're a bartender. Like, uh, like, what are you going to do when you grow up? And right. like, you can actually make a, you can actually make a career out of it now. You like absolutely. You, with brand work and, and everything else. Uh, there's, there is, it, it's a very good living and you can make a very yeah. healthy living for the rest of your life. If you, if you do it right. That said, so in researching, doing events, we came across Tiki and what fascinated me then still does to this day is how the bartender had so much power. If you knew all the ingredients that went in those Tiki drinks um, that Don the Beachcomber and Trader Vic it, it created, then now the bartender had all this power. They could leverage their salaries. If somebody wanted to hire them away, they could say, well, oh, I want to make $10,000 more a year than I was making because <laughs> I have the little black book with all the recipes. Uh-huh. Right. And I, I thought that was fascinating. So what's your first cocktail memory? I don't think my brain works like that. <laughs> um, Mine wasn't a pleasant one. <laughs> wasn't really a cocktail I'll, either. I'll answer that in several ways. So one, one fond memory, and also I will never drink one again, is uh, living in Tampa in the 90s and the, a nightclub called 911 in downtown Tampa which was like this two-story crazy, uh, crazy place that always had nuclear kamikazes, right? Some really bad blue curacao, <laughs> some cheap well vodka and some fake lime juice. Right. <laughs> oh, I drank a lot of those in my 20s. <laughs> yeah. I drank kamikazes really in my 20s experience. too. Yeah. <laughs> I drank but mind erasers. Little, uh, Not a good idea. Yeah, oh, oh <laughs> my God. Yeah. No. Here's some straws. Get to work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just have some really fond memories of of drinks and they happen at weird times. It's like people's names. I'm really bad with names, but if something happens and I meet you and I have to make this connection with you, I'll never forget your name. Right. As right. Where I can have somebody next to me that I work with, you know, two, three times a week and I have a hard time spitting out their name on a daily basis. It's weird. Not right. seeing someone for 10 years and remembering everything you know about them and working next to somebody and you're like, uh, what's your kid's name again? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah. Uh, so, so one of mine was, uh, I was in, uh, Sweden, uh, touring the absolute distillery and we went to this place and they had a drink made with rapeseed oil. Like the bartender went to a rapeseed field and actually harvested the rape and, and harvested uh, some winter wheat and made this drink based on ingredients that either are in or grow around where they harvest the, the absolute stuff. Right. So mm. and I'm having this drink and there's this coat of oil on top and you just think like, Ooh, that just sounds gross, but it was definitely a, an, uh, uh, a drinking epiphany where I'm like, wow. Hmm. I mean, somebody really went outside the box and took all this care to do all these things and they served it to me. And now I'm just starstruck over it. Like, wow. Dude, I love do you know how drink. to make that one? Oh no. Like, it was, <laughs> uh, uh, accents, uh, accents be one thing, but then just, uh, there was a lot of drinking involved on that trip, um, which <laughs> just makes memory hazy a little bit. So, uh, I just remember the experience and I'll never forget that drink, even though I couldn't tell you a single thing that was in it outside of the, the things I mentioned. <laughs> cool. We'll just see if we can find that. Yeah. Well, we cook with grapeseed oil all yeah. the time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm not just going to pour some on top of my, my, 
my martini though. I might put some on there yeah. and not tell you. Okay. <laughs> so D- Dean, you were talking about the uh, little black book of cocktail recipes. Sure. Tell us about Jeff Berry. Oh, wow. Um, I can't say enough um, important things about what he did to revive the great tiki cocktails. The um, I'm trying to think what Trader Vic called them. Rum Rhapsodies right mm-hmm. that were locked away in little black books and, and uh rolodexes and anything else that a bartender might have used to, to keep track of recipes he decoded all of those and was just tireless at it in the 90s um he he really is the the godfather of of the rebirth of tiki and i've gotten to know him fairly well over the years and he's just one of those guys that you understand why he is who he is when you spend some time with him. Cause he's just, as soon as he starts talking, it's like the room goes quiet. Cause you just want to hear what he has to right. say. It could be the cheesiest off the wall, weirdest <laughs> thing, but you're like, but Jeff Barry's saying it. <laughs> That's funny. He's just mesmerizing. He's just a really cool guy and, and quite the character and sweet and loving and, and uh, very careful, but also to the point, like he's not, I don't think I would ever say he's rude, but like if he really feels strongly about something, he's going to stand up and say, no, 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 this is, this is the way it is. And you take it or leave it, but this is, no, no, you're, this is the way it is. And I love that about him as well. Did you get a chance for him to autograph any books for you? I did. Yeah. So he has a sip and safari and um, potions of the Caribbean. And through my trips to new Orleans, usually I'm in new Orleans every July for tales of the cocktail. Um, and he has his bar latitude 29 is right there in new Orleans. And, um, Definitely whenever I'm anywhere near New Orleans going to that bar, of course, but uh, working with him at the Hookie Lao and him sending me his personal recipes cool. and trusting me to help him make those recipes at the event for hundreds of people. I would say we've, we've built quite a good relationship and uh, respect for one another in, in what we do. And That's actually, awesome. when, I, when I first thought of opening up my own bar, well, while I was in New Orleans for One Tales of the Cocktail, I sat down with him and asked his permission to open up my own bar. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just felt I'd give him that you know, tip of the hat out of respect. And um, yeah, just a, just a great guy. So would it be safe to say that he would be a cocktail mentor for you? I, I think so. Definitely. Do you have any other cocktail mentors that you'd like uh, to Martin mention? Kate? Yeah, Martin Kate. I uh, got to know him through the Hookie Lao and, and, and again, Tales of the Cocktail. And I think we were even in in Edinburgh and Scotland once. And he, he's San event. Francisco. Yeah. Smuggler's Cove. Smuggler's Cove. Right. Yeah. And so now, we're as, so good. I was going to say, you mentioned the, um, Hookie Lao in Fort Lauderdale. The first time you mentioned that when we first met you, I thought, Oh, that's the place you worked at. But now I figured out it's an actual five day event mm-hmm. that culminates at, at a place called my Kai. And that's a place you previously mentioned that, uh, opened in 1956 and it's still there in yes. Fort Lauderdale. Cool. Yeah. yeah, the Hookie Louse, originally the first one was in Atlanta, but because uh, there's such a huge tiki filing, uh, following up there. There's also a lot of rockabilly in that area, mm-hmm. um, and rockabilly and tiki seem to go very well together. Um, but then they eventually moved it to Fort Lauderdale, and I don't know all the reasons why, but I can imagine it's because of the Mai Kai and everyone's love of it. And back mm-hmm. then, you know, the, the Hookie Lao has got to be close to 20 years old now, that uh, they wanted to support the Mai Kai. So why not move it to Fort Lauderdale and give everybody a reason from Atlanta to go on vacation? Right. And it just kind of snowballed into this bigger and ever bigger event. And I think if uh, I don't think an event will get pulled off this year, not the same way anyway, if one does at all. Uh, but next year in uh, 
2022, it'll, it'll be a big, a big come together for sure. Oh, I, bet. I can imagine it'll be one of the biggest ones yet. Yeah, so, I was gonna... so this is like Burning Man for Tiki uh, lovers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on this coast, yeah. There's there's several that happen on the other coast, like Tiki Oasis, um, that are also quite big. Because um, the West Coast really owns Tiki more so than the East Coast, uh, but we're, we're 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 growing in strength. Yeah, so I don't know if I cut you off on uh, naming cocktail mentors, but if I did, oh, let's continue with that. And also, uh, I have the impression you've been around around the world a little bit working Tiki. Not so much for Tiki, but whenever I travel, yes, I will go out of my way to find um, a Tiki bar wherever I'm at. Just to, just out of curiosity. It's like I like going to grocery stores when I travel because it's always weird how like, <laughs> you know, they keep the eggs out over here. And you ever go to, to France and the cheese is just sitting out at room temperature all the time. Like it's right. just the smells and the, the experiences that are crazy. Yeah. Right, so how right. other other countries and other cultures take on Tiki is just kind of interesting, too. Because, again, there are there are there aren't very many rules i guess there are a few um but at the same time it's meant all those rules are meant to be broken right mm -hmm. so but you to mentioned go back to, 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 <laughs> sorry go ahead. sorry it's okay <laughs> and and thank you for keeping me on track because my mind is i had a, a, a double espresso and a, and a <laughs> soda water now my brain's going kooky um martin kate so he approached tiki in a different element as where jeff was more about the lifestyle and focusing on the on making the drinks um, Martin Kate seemed to jump in on the rum side of things. So he was really fascinated with how a single product rum made from sugarcane and sugarcane byproduct could be so wildly different from country to country and style to style and, and right. just endless amounts of it. And Tiki is the Tiki drinks. That was the first time people were mixing base spirits. So instead of using one whiskey to make your Manhattan, imagine if you used a bourbon and a rye, to make your Manhattan. Cool. Now you're getting a sense of what Tiki was doing with rums. So you have a light style an aromatic style and a funky style, and you blend all three together to get where you want it to be for the drink. And that's cool. the fascination of that. And Martin really dived very deeply into that. Um, and even part of Smuggler's Cove, a big part of that is, you know, taste all the rums we have and you get a, you get a hat, you're become a, a member of our little group of rum geeks that taste all the rums we come across. Yeah. It's a, it's a, a fez that he wears, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's so many different, uh, like you said, types of rum and styles and flavors. It's, I guess uh, it's limitless possibilities just about trying, you know, you could take one drink and do it so many different ways with different rums and find out which one you like the best, which is what it's you guys so did at Burnt Ends, right? Exactly. We followed the basic recipe, the rule of the road, but where it called for a Puerto Rican style or a Virgin Island style, which are very similar, like column distilled at a molasses lightly aged, possibly charcoal filtered to remove any coloring and to calm it down, to calm the spirit down. Translate that endless amounts of ways. Um, and in that, you can then start blending and creating the way you think the drink should taste or to put your thumbprint on. Like I'm really proud of our th uh, three dots in a dash. It's a drink mm -hmm. I never paid much attention to until we started playing with it. And there's one very specific rum that went in it that just made it explode for me. And it was like a lightning bolt. Uh, and now it's one of my favorites. Right. And that came out in the 1940s after the war. Three dots and a dash is Morse code for V. Yes. For victory. Yeah. Pretty cool. You uh, previously mentioned Paris and there's a well-known tiki bar there. Yes. Scotty Shooter's place. Scotty Shooter's Dirty Dick. Yeah. <laughs> and it was yep. formerly the red light district. That was for, it was formerly a brothel. 
Ah. Now, yes, did you tell us a, previously that you worked there or yet you worked with him? I'd worked with him at the Hookie Lao. So the Hookie ah. Lao is great at bringing guest bars from all over the world. Right. And um, so I got to got to know Scotty Shooter that way. Also, Danelli De Polo, he has a bar in uh, Bologna in, in uh, Italy called New Lounge. And he just opened up his own place called Exotico uh, in Miami. Hmm. So he's become a friend, uh, a tiki compatriot, if you will. And um, yeah, the Hookie Lao's brought me so much of that. Cool. Yeah, that's I, awesome. I well, we yeah. have to go back to Paris now and go to Dirty Dick. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. He, he went he went full immersive in the build out and the style of it. And they're great. He has great people that work with him and for him. It's just an American living in Paris building a tiki bar in the red light district. I mean, it's a recipe for, for awesomeness. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Totally. Exactly. So tell us about your rum and Coke. My rum and Coke. Yeah. You were telling us about it at burnt at burnt ends. Oh, I did. Yeah. So when we opened up, uh, <laughs> so when I was working for burnt steakhouse and they were opening up, uh, Elevage, the hotel across the street there, they had the edge bar on the second or third floor. I can't remember. Yeah, I think Fourth it's the floor. third. We didn't want to go full tropical, or at least they wouldn't let me. I think I forget which one is true there, but I wanted to have some fun drinks. And I fell in love with Rum JM at that point. And they have a hundred proof gold. And that mixed with Pellegrino makes a Canoto soda, which is a, a blood orange, like a bitter orange soda mm -hmm. from Italy. And those two married together was just blew my mind. Cause like rum and Coke, I have no interest in rum and Coke. Right. Coke is too sweet. This is not really my flavor profile. As a kid, I drank too much of it. And when I decided to stop drinking it, I had headaches for like three straight days. Wow. <laughs> I experienced uh, sorry, this Coke. myself, but I was Diet Coke. Yeah. It's once you stop, man, ooh, it's, it's, it's rough. It is. But tasting those flavors together and the bitterness balances out the sweet and the rum is just funky and wild and aggressive, but was calmed down by the soda. It was just, uh, it was again, a little, again, like a drink epiphany. Yeah. Um, I don't push those, but yeah, if you want a, a solid rum and Coke, I say just get better rum. Yeah, cool. yeah, really. <laughs> there you go. So we got to try that drink though, too. So Dean, we're going to take a quick break, sure. pay some bills, and we'll be right back. Dat's Restaurant in downtown St. Pete not only has some of the tastiest food, they're also unique and creative. They're the home of comfort food with flair, a foodie wonderland filled with bacon, cheese, and house-made breads. I love their shrimp and grits, which made our top 10 list. The trick is they use cream cheese and an Indian makani sauce. They also have a bunch of great burgers that use certified Angus beef. And two that they're famous for are the Cheesy Todd, where instead of a bun, you have two bacon jalapeno mac and cheese buns, and then the Double D, where you have two whole glazed donuts instead of a hamburger bun. Yeah, it's crazy. Crazy. Yeah. I love the spaghetti in meatball, ginormous meatball stuffed with spaghetti inside the meatball, then served on top of more pasta. They also have tacos, fish and chips, meatloaf, pulled pork, grouper sandwich, salmon, a great steak salad, and tons more. They've got a huge location with lots of outdoor seating, and the inside is as spacious as it gets, great for social distancing. They're right in the heart of downtown St. Pete on the very first block of the famed Central Avenue, 180 Central Avenue. Their website is datstampa.com, and on Facebook you can find them at dats for foodies Check out Dats in downtown St. Pete. 
As a St. Pete Foodies listener, you should also check out the Zest podcast from WUSF Public Media. You know, the Tampa NPR folks. Every Thursday, host Dahlia Cologne shares everything from food history to the best restaurants you haven't tried. There's recipes you'll want to try and a different slice of our state's foodie scene. The key lime actually is native to Southeast Asia. The English sailors were called limeys when they found out that they put it in their barrels of water to get rid of that brackish, well-watered taste. They uh, didn't get scurvy anymore, so they wanted them in all their ports in the tropics, so they took the seeds and planted them. So that's how we ended up with key limes down here. We invite you to listen to The Zest on your favorite podcast app or at thezestpodcast.com. Tell Tell them St. Pete Foodies sent you. We are back! We are back! We are back with Dean Hurst, the beverage director for Dat's Restaurant Group, and we're talking all things tiki. And Dean, what's a great, simple rum cocktail recipe for people to make at home? I would say the daiquiri. Mm -hmm. And I think that, well, it's important to bring up the daiquiri anyway, because most people think of it as um, some frozen, sweet, fruit-flavored thing. But really, the daiquiri originally was cane sugar or simple syrup, fresh squeezed lime juice, and pick a rum. Prefer At that point, it was mostly just like a white unaged rum or lightly aged and filtered rum. And this all happened in the late 1800s. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this that dates back to specifically an American being in, in Cuba, in a mining, a mining town and creating this drink. But the... The cool thing about the daiquiri is once you master that, you start to understand the balance of sweet and sour, mm-hmm. right? Sweet and sweet and acid. And if when you balance them out right, the drink doesn't taste like either one or the other. It is this new thing, right? So when you balance out sweet and acid, it's it has this harmony and it's amazing. So you can taste the lime and you get the mouthfeel of the sugar because anything sweet has a syrupy texture to it. So it's yeah. not just about being sweet. It's also texture. It makes mm-hmm. the drink taste less thin. It just gives it mouthfeel, if you will. Mm-hmm. And then in the, in the rum. So when you're trying to figure out what rums you like and then how to use rum in a cocktail, it's like the, the, the blueprint for moving forward. So if you used a white unaged rum or a lightly aged rum, a pot still rum, a blended rum, an agricole, anything, you start to, it, it will work. It'll might not make your favorite daiquiri, but it'll make a really solid drink. You then start to understand how the rum is in a cocktail, even one that basic. And then you could slowly start building other components, like uh, maybe a flavoring agent, like a liqueur, a peach liqueur, um, maybe mm. another juice, like orange juice, which goes back to the mouthfeel thing. It's both su- sweet, but also mildly acidic, but has a great texture to it. Yeah. Like orange juice has this creaminess about it that the other citruses don't have. Right. So now you can understand how the drinks build from that. Maybe don't use all simple syrup, put a little bit of cinnamon syrup in with it. Ooh. Or a dash of grapefruit bitters or Angostura, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and then you start to see how the drink evolves from three basic ingredients and starts to build up to something else. I think that's um, the absolute perfect drink in the tiki world to learn about rum, but then also how to build your own cocktails. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That is cool. Now, now I want one. <laughs> <laughs> So are you a Trader Vicks or Don the Beachcomber man and why? Wow. That's another one right. I'd say my brain doesn't quite work that way. I would say <laughs> that it's like when someone says, what's your favorite movie? I don't know. I can list 10. Right. <laughs> Pick one. I don't even know how to do that. Um, right. I would say that Don the Beachcomber was, I can relate to his 
randomness and wanting to build something versus to do what's been done before. So I always try to find that avenue that I can take that might be a little bit different than everyone else's to put my own mark on it. Not to say that my way would be better, but just to, it's how I learn is by doing it myself and to Mm -hmm. figure out my way and and how it makes sense to my brain. So in that regards, I have huge respect for, um, and I always get the name backwards, Raymond Ernest Beaumont Gann or Ernest Raymond Beaumont Gann. I forget his original name. There's four names Mm -hmm. mixed in there and um, (laughs) quite the character. So he traveled all over the Pacific and the Caribbean as a rum runner with his grandfather and then as an explorer. And the beachcomber term is like literally waking up in the morning and seeing what washed up on the beach, collecting that and then opening up a restaurant full of all that stuff you found. Like that sounds amazing to me. That's Mm -hmm. like, it's like going to work in your living room. It just sounds like that is pretty cool. So from that respect, I, I love that aspect of, of him. And then Victor Bergeron, it's, he saw that idea and was so annoying and present at Don the Beachcombers, they actually kicked him out, made him wait outside. They wouldn't let him <laughs> in anymore because he's like sitting there writing everything down. Then it goes back to San Francisco and opens up Trader Vic's. Uh-huh. Um, and then he took Trader Vic's all over the world. So I think you have to kind of know and respect and, and adore in a way each of them for what they contributed as a creator, but then also as an innovator and as somebody who kind of perfected the recipe, if that's, if I'm saying it the right way, but yeah, it's like, it's a uh, Victor Bergeron, Trader Vic. That's the first chain restaurant. Wow, <laughs> right. right. Did somebody tell Trader Joe about this? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going to ask you what your favorite tiki drink is, <laughs> but, but I am going to ask you outside of tiki drinks, what's your go-to? Wow. That's hard or, to answer. Or, or is it just answer, tiki drinks? I, I will I will say that it's um I've answered is this question and similar questions this way, which is if I'm out, whether it be by myself or friends, I'm in my city or a new city, the first thing I do when I walk into a bar is I'm going to have a conversation with the bartender. And I don't mean like I'm evaluating them or you know, you know, have, have let's play 20 questions before I order a drink, but just I'm just gonna pay attention. I'll give a good example and a bad example. So I was in Savannah for my niece's wedding uh, last November. And I walked into a bar that said they had the world's best margarita. And I'm like, awesome. I would love a margarita. That sounds delicious. I walk in there and the, the bartender, and I won't name the place or I'm not trying to make fun of them, but it, may, it might be a cost issue. But they, she garnished the gentleman next to me's vodka and soda with a lime that had brown edges on the outside of it. Oh. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I doubt you have a very good margarita here. <laughs> you're just paying attention. Like, what is this bar all about? I see 90 whiskeys and one rum. I'm going to order a whiskey drink. You know, that's going to be my favorite drink of that moment. And Mm -hmm. I'll probably order an old fashioned, you know, if they have a bunch of tequila and mezcal or really cool things, maybe it's not a lot, but they have really awesome agave products. I'm going to drift towards that direction. Right. Um, Right. So I don't, I don't drink that much to have like a go-to drink. I, but I, when I am at a bar, especially a new bar, I will, give a quick once over and talk to the bartender and see how interested and engaged they are. And if they want to make me a really good drink or I'm fine, just drinking, you know, wild Turkey one one on the rocks. Right. Um, I'd rather have a great experience with a bartender than have a great experience and not be happy with the service. Right. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I like that. Yeah. I like that too. Yeah. So let's talk about burnt ends Tiki bar. And as I mentioned earlier, it's the uh, upstairs outdoor bar at Dr. Barbecue. And when we first went, you know, we were thinking, Tiki drinks, I guess we were um, stereotyping, thinking that they're overly sweet mm-hmm. and there's not going to be enough alcohol. 
And we were very pleasantly surprised that the drinks we had were extremely well-balanced. They weren't too sweet. They were flavorful. And it was just for us, we thought just the right amount of alcohol to mix ratio. And, you know, cause we don't normally like overly sweet drinks. And I think right. some places that's just how they do them, but also it's the quality of the ingredients. You make some stuff in house. The, uh, I don't remember how to say this. O-R-G-E-A-T. Yeah. How, how are you? Orgia. Orgia. Like, uh, orgia. I saw it written down like Zsa, Zsa Gabor, like, <laughs> like that. Yeah. So Orgia. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So tell us about that. About Orgia or about the drinks? Well, we're going to get into some, <laughs> yeah, definitely want to get into some drinks, but to be honest with you, I had to look it up and find the definition that it says syrup. It's a sweet syrup made from almond sugar and rose water or orange flower water. And then there's more and, to it than that, but yeah, we use both. It. Like if you were to make it from scratch, you would take blanched almonds and puree them in like a food processor of some sort with a certain amount of water. So you have like X amount of nuts, X amount of water, pulverize that up and get it into like almost like a slurry. Right. And then you squeeze that through a cheesecloth to then start to get the essence of the almond out, the oils and some of the flavors and, and particulates and get all that out. And then you would dump that the almonds right back in the water and then strain it out again. You're just trying to mm. like push everything you can out of the, out of those um, minced up almonds. I know some bars that learn to use a, like um, when you make sausage, the big sausage press. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they'll put the almonds in that wrapped in the cheesecloth and then just, just squeeze the living life out of it. Um, oh, wow. Let, let the machine do the work and versus your hands doing the work. Right. And I would love to do that. You get a much richer flavor. You get a more complex flavor. We don't have the time or the space. So I've perfected, and I'll, I'll give you a, uh, happily to give you a rough idea of what we're using. So we just buy store-bought almond milk, mm-hmm. ah. which is basically made the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. You're not going to get the full flavoredness of it. It's just like buying store-bought orange juice or squeezing a fresh orange. They're right. the same thing, but they have different flavors and textures and acid levels and everything else. Okay. That's a cool um, shortcut. Yeah. For what we're doing, it works. And then yes. I use a couple different kinds of sugar. I use almond extracts, orange flower water, and rose flower water. And in that combination of things, it's one I've been working on at my house for years. So if you want to have a party the next day, it doesn't take a whole lot to get a solid orgia into someone's Mai Tai or right. Saturn. Um, I found an easy way to do that that we're replicating here at the bar for basically out of necessity because the other way I, I can't guarantee it have the time to always do it. Mm-hmm. So this way, at least I know the recipe's fixed. And if you like the Mai Tai on day one, you're going to like it on day 30 and on day 90 and five years from now, uh, right. it's just going to be the same. Right. So there's another ingredient in one of the drinks. And it's, this is an, I'm seeing this in the jet pilot and I think it's in some others as well. And it's another big word for me. Starts with an F. Thou- the falernum? Falernum? Falernum. Yeah, falernum. That's, so that's uh, so, a new one for me. What is that? Um, again, something you can make in-house and a lot of people do. And I think they're truly amazing when you can make it in-house. You, you really have control of what flavor components you want to bring out in it. So it's a rum base and you would um, have ginger, lime zest, a little fresh lime juice, almonds, either blanched, raw or toasted, uh, clove. Some people put lemongrass in it and you would let that steep inside that rum base, usually an overproof rum. Like I, when mm. I've made it before, I've used Ray and Nephew overproof, which if you've ever had that, it's like this really herbaceous, funky, crazy flavor profile that is almost calmed down by everything else. 
And then you add a certain amount of sugar into that. So you have this sweet liqueur that's not, you know, it's sweet in texture. And if you put some on your fingers and rub it together, like, oh, there's a lot of sugar in here, but it doesn't taste sweet because there's so much going on in it that it just becomes this other thing. And right. it's brings a huge punch of flavor. Most recipes only call for a quarter ounce or maybe even less in a drink. Mm. But that little bit just brings this whole world of flavor into the drink. So it's one ingredient that has a whole bunch of ingredients in it. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, and a cool thing you guys do is you list the year or, or time frame that the drink kind of came out or became popular. Uh, for example, we had the 151 Swizzle, which is described as a fancy da- daiquiri on ice with the punch of 151 rum. Hamilton's, help me out here. Demer- Demerara? Uh, so Hamilton's is Guyana. So it's... um. Ah. Northernmost part of South America is Guyana, and mm. they have one distillery there called the Diamond Distillery. And I'll, I'll, I'm glad you brought this up because it's a really cool thing. They actually have wooden stills. Oh wow! Stills made of wood. Wow. <laughs> Copper insides because you got to have some metal oh. right to make the whole machine work. Yeah. Um, but the outside of it, instead of being, being copper, it's made of this crazy indigenous wood that grows there that is almost. Uh, impenetrable liquid just doesn't huh. want to go into it. They made wow. docks and pier systems out of it. And they just, they just had necessities, a mother of all invention. They made these wooden stills. So you get this crazy flavor profile and they also use a very specific sugar cane called Demerara. So out of that combination, you get these awesome Guyanese rums that you just, the flavor profile is like anything else. It's, it's like nothing else. Wow. Huh. We have to try to find that. Yeah, one. I know. Mm. Very fascinating. And that one's from the 1940s, the 151 Swizzle. And now fast forward to 1978 with the Jungle Bird. And that uh, has yes. Jama- a Jamaican rum blend and Campari along with pineapple and lime juices. So our, whenever a recipe calls for Jamaican rum, typically we're blending different styles of rum. Uh, at first, I thought we'd use just this one Jamaican blend. It would be for all the drinks that I've asked for Jamaican rum, we do this one blend. And then I got to thinking, I'm like, well, that's not right. That's too easy. So we went into each drink and thought about what rums we could combine with the other rums, or in this case, Campari, to then get the flavor profile to where the bitterness from the Campari isn't taking over, but then the rum isn't stepping on the Campari and the delicateness of like the, like the orange peel elements of Campari. So we started playing around with what Jamaican rums do we want to use in this drink that asks for Jamaican rum. And we got, we dived deeper into that. Yeah. So that's a, that's a lot of testing, you know, trying it all is, different I combinations. Know. And so do you, when you do that, are you making like little mini drinks? No, yeah, unfortunately it's hard to cheat that way. You kind of got to make full size drinks. Okay. And I guess I'll toot my own horn a little bit. Like I've been doing this a long time and I learned how to evaluate spirits. Like you take a small white wine glass and you stick whatever spirit you want to, you know, evaluate or try to figure out what you want to do with. And it can be punishing if you've never done it before because you're thinking about like when you are smelling wine in a glass that you stick your nose all the way in the glass. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't want to do that with rum, especially if it's like 50 <laughs> or 60 percent alcohol. Um, but it helps you to understand the aromatics of it, but then also evaluate the texture and the flavor profiles, the beginning and the middle and the end of the spirit. Um, so, yeah, making a whole drink allowed us to dive deeper into, well, do we want to use Appleton eight year or Appleton 12? Are we looking for some of the funk or do you want more of the wood age? How much Smith and Cross do we want to use? Do we want to jump over here and use more of this style of uh, Jamaican rum? And uh, 
So having that background of evaluating spirits, I don't want to say I'm, I'm right all the time because that's just not true. But a lot of times I can just through the mechanics of having done it before, um, get to a pretty close place to where I want to be. And then we'll make a few more versions just to make sure it's right and kind of calibrate from there. So once you've really put the time into understanding that element of the nuances of every rum you could possibly use, you kind of create your internal filing system, uh, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and it, it helps it helps me to get to that place faster than somebody who's just starting out. Right. Um, so you're like, I'm you're not like making... A you're like a sommelier for spirits. Uh, Their name in for a that? sense, yeah. I, I've <laughs> tested that as far as I possibly can. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's 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 amazing. I, but I, I try to teach new bartenders that, like, it, it, you might think you've known a lot, having been doing this for two years. But wait till you get to five years and realize that at two years you didn't know anything. Or you, right, right. You were only scratching the surface. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not yeah. just about making drinks. It's about making guests happy and making uh, an environment for guests to be comfortable and safe in, as well as making drinks, bringing up things, not making mistakes, keeping the place clean. <laughs> right. I mean, right. all these bartenders have one of the hardest jobs to do really, really well. Mm -hmm. I think anyone can do it, but to be really great at it, like you have to really care about everything that you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some of the best bartenders we know, they've been doing it for years and years and years. Yep. It's like anything, you know, that somebody is an expert at, they kind of make it look easy. They don't look like they're exerting much effort. Right. But if you then had to jump back there and do the exact same thing, you'd epically fail, or I should say I would. Right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, back to drinks, we loved your Mai Tai. It was so well-balanced and delicious. Yes, it was. And I think is, that's probably one of the most well-known ones. Well, Pina Colada. Daiquiri, Mai Tai, right? Thank you. Yeah, first for the compliment. Yeah, it's yeah. that is, is more. Go ahead. Is a pina colada a tiki drink? Not necessarily. Oh, it's I not. Mean, that's what I think owned, of. It's been owned. I think the tiki world, and again, being in Tampa, Florida, and just Florida in general, like every little town has a tiki <laughs> bar. But is it really a tiki bar? Like, yeah, right. Kind of, it's like, it has a thatched roof on it and it has little funny figures with they call the, the the tiki carvers will call them chiclet teeth, you know, the big giant white teeth sticking <laughs> right. out of it. Right. Um, but are you gonna get a really great drink there? Mm, you might get a really cold drink and it'll probably yeah. be delicious on some level, but um right. Yeah, so you have to be careful when you walk into a, a tiki bar as to what you're actually getting yourself into. Right. Um, <laughs> but the the Mai Tai and in reading through Martin Kate's book on Smuggler's Cove, um, he was talking about the Mai Tai as being like the elevation. I'm, I'm paraphrasing uh, a lot of this, but he was basically saying like, so the Mai Tai is kind of like the daiquiri in that it doesn't matter. Like it started out as being Jamaican rums. Uh, that was a Jamaican rum, specifically a Ray and nephew, a 17 year old rum, which I wish I could get a hold of some of that and make it Mai Tai with it. Um, the, uh, you really can't go wrong. Like it's rum, orgia, lime, orange curacao, right? Like it's, it's, it's got a very specific recipe to it, but the rums, there's so much interpretation there. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the modern one is a, a blend of like one part Jamaican rum and one part aged rum agricole. Uh, so yeah, like pot still molasses and, and column still sugarcane rums. 
And those are great too. Or you have a Hawaiian Mai Tai, which is a whole different animal where you top it off. There's pineapple juice in that and you top off with a dark rum and has this like layered look to it. Nice. If you go to Hawaii, that's the Mai Tai you're going to get in Hawaii. Right. Um, but this other one, the one that you are familiar with, though you taste it here, there's other plenty of other bars around here in, in St. Pete and in Tampa that make a really good Mai Tai, but they're probably all different and have different styles of rum. Right. So it really is just like this great cocktail that can be translated into anyone's flavor profile or whatever happens to be on your back bar. I'm sure you can make a really good Mai Tai mm-hmm. right. just about any rum. Right. But that's why I said when I said we loved it, that's why I said we loved your Mai Tai. Right. Right. <laughs> that's why I said Thank that. you again. Yeah. yeah. So we went we went really deep into the Jamaican profile and wanted to stay with just Jamaican rum. So we use one that's very floral and aromatic. Um, has some richness, but it's um, more from like molasses coloring than true aging. And then another one that is aged for a prolonged period of time. And I have another one that's just super funky and brings in all these like um, the esters that come from the, the fermentation, but then also the distillation process. And together, the three of them make something just totally incredible. And I, I just think it's the, a perfect blend for the, for the version of Mai Tai I want to sell. Right. Make right. me thirsty. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love so, that. That rum blend smell. Like whenever I'm making one, I can just smell it. It kind of makes me happy inside. Yeah. <laughs> it's making me happy too. Just thinking about it. So I'm, I want to just mention, there's a whole bunch more drinks. I'm just going to, we're, we're getting tight on time. So I'm just going to mention one more drink. And then I want to uh, rattle off some of the food items and the pertinent details for burnt end Siki bar, the jet pilot from 1958. And I don't know if you told us that was one of your favorites or one. it was one of Ray's favorites. It's one of mine for sure. Mm-hmm. So most people have heard of the zombie before they've heard of the jet pilot. Right. So the zombie is, uh, if you were to look at the two recipes, the ingredients are almost identical. The zombie has a bar spoon of grenadine in it, but otherwise all the ingredients are almost exactly the same, just in different proportions. The zombie having more rum, the jet pilot having more juice. And the way I like to describe the two, is the jet pilot is more flavorful and more drinkable mm-hmm. because it's not just about this powerhouse of rum in your face. It's incredibly well balanced and has everything when it's made well, it just hits all these great notes. Um, it is, it is one of my, that, I think that might be my favorite tiki drink. Ah, we yeah, got one out of yeah. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah. And most people that get really deep into the tiki drinks, it's usually the Mai Tai or the Jet Pilot that tend to be their favorites. Cool. So I want to name a few of the uh, food items. The Our favorite were the gochujang sticky ribs. I also like that the chili garlic smoked wings were nice and spicy. Mm-hmm. And the poo-poo platter was fun because that, that, that brought me so back funny. to my childhood. I, I grew up in the 70s and you know, going out to like Chinese restaurants with my parents mm-hmm. up, up in New Jersey in the seventies, there was no such thing as Chinese takeout. It was a sit down service restaurant and we'd always get poo-poo platters. And also, oh yeah, we love the Hawaiian pulled pork sliders and we had coconut shrimp and a whole bunch more stuff. Mm-hmm. So again, Burt Ends Tiki Bar, it's in the edge district, a block south of the roundabout. So you can get there from Central Lab there. That's a well-known spot. The address is 1101 First Avenue South. The website's quite simple, burntendstikibar.com. I just want to mention that Burnt Ends regular hours, you, you guys open at three every day, Monday through Thursday, closing at 10, Friday and Saturday till 11, Sunday at nine. However, you do open earlier when there's a raise day game, right? 
Yeah, whenever there's an opportunity, especially because of the stadium, we look at the stadium from the bar. Um, if there's going to be a day game, which usually start around one, we'd try to open up at 11 to make sure if there was any people. Because Dr. Barbecue is a very popular joint. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it stop is. Pre-game and post-game that we like to at least take care of the people when they're around. Yeah. yeah. So keep in mind Dr. Barbecue and Burnt Dance Tiki Bar when you're going to a raised day game. And we went to a night game. And we went to Burnt and Seeky Bar before. We did. That's where we started. <laughs> Dean Hurst, thank you so much. Yes, Dean, thank you. This was great. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Can't wait to get together with you again and have some more cocktails. Yeah, it'll be yeah, soon. Yeah, please let me know because I'm usually close by. Great. <laughs> we'll be right back. This is Chris Walker. We have a new top 10 list on the website, which is the 10 best St. Petersburg brunch spots updated for 2021. You'll find that and more on stpetersburgfoodies.com. Next week on the show, our guest is the executive chef at one of the hottest new places in downtown St. Pete. She's worked at several places in New York City. She's cooked for Anthony Bourdain. And we will be talking to chef Susan Burdian from Social Roost. If you want to get in touch, drop us an email at info at stpetersburgfoodies.com. That's it for this episode of the St. Petersburg Foodies podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our guest, Dean Hurst. And thanks to our sponsors. Trophy Fish. Dats. Rollin' Oats. The Zest Podcast. Noble Crust. Booyah Ramen. And, and Engine, Engine Number nine. 9. Our announcer is Candice Aviles from Meet the Chef and Channel 10 News. And our theme music is provided by the Chris Walker Band. We'd like to remind you to check out all the latest restaurant reviews, foodies news, top 10 lists, and updated happy hours on stpetersburgfoodies.com. Please give us a rating and review on whichever app you're using to listen to the show. And remember to share the show with your foodie friends. Until Until next next time, time, may your food be hot and your bubbly cold. You know, the problem with people today is nobody wants to work. All they want to do is sit at home and make phone call after phone call after phone call to the unemployment office for a check that may not even come. Nobody wants to work anymore. When we said people in the service industry are heroes, we meant that panderingly. It's time to get back to work after being overworked for the past year in dangerous conditions for very little pay. I want my mozzarella sticks. Nobody wants to work anymore. You people need to stop finding better paying jobs and come back to where I eat so you can ask me how I'm doing and I can respond with Dr. Pepper, extra ice, all while not looking up from the menu. Nobody wants to work anymore. So what if your kids aren't back in in in-person school or almost out on summer break? Kids can watch themselves because I need you to clean up after after mine because they're messy eaters. Nobody wants to work anymore. No, I'm not vaccinated. I won't wear a mask and I got a bad attitude, but at least I don't tip well. Nobody wants to work anymore. Oh, what do I do for work? I took an early retirement.